If language didn't elicit pleasure, if it didn't have its music, its juiciness or jouissance, would we notice? Or would we always be destined to find pleasure in it because that's a thing that we humans can do? Out of the way we move, we make dance. Out of the way we speak, we can make poetry and oratory and comedy and all kinds of verbal enchantments. Cheese is real, and so it seems, is the pleasure of language. I thought it only suitable to quote Mr. Stephen Fry when introducing Tom White. Words jostled, tumble and turned through Tom as he shared his rich tapestry of experiences growing up as a New Yorker, exploring the liberal arts, his relationship with the cardinal virtues, and what it means to learn to master language despite living with Tourette's syndrome. Volume up. Tom is a literary renaissance man. He's a man for all seasons, whose energy for life will encourage you. Tom's romantic notion of New York City can't help but infect you with an appreciation for the city that doesn't sleep. He made sure to remind us of that saying, which I agree with, that East Coast people are kind, but not nice, while West Coast people are nice, but not kind. Tom doesn't let Tourette's stop him, and you soon begin to realize that nothing will stop him from achieving his ambitions. He has taught me a lot about storytelling, writing, and resilience. Thank you, Tom. And we are very, very excited to be sponsored by the Making Lemonade Fund, Gen Z's fastest growing fundraiser, supporting COVID-19 relief, pediatric cancer, and a bunch of other great causes. Get behind them over at makinglemonadefund.com and sponsor by our very own Jesse Kay. Well, today we are joined by none other than Tom White, writing partner at OnDeck, content strategist, chief copywriter, investor, startup advisor. Tom, you're equally comfortable at a whiteboard or on the podium. Uh, you've really finessed communication. Some words that kind of summarize you, you're, you're, you've got a lot of integrity, you're a hustler, you're resilient, you've got a sense of humor, and you've delivered a TED talk about your life with Tourette syndrome whilst you are graduating with a double major in liberal studies and Italian. Now you're writing at the Observer Effect and also your own publication, White Noise. So welcome, Tom. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Tony. It is an honor and a privilege to be here. And yeah, if uh, just listening to all that, it feels like <laughs> I have no focus and I'm just a whirling dervish. And honestly, that's hey. kind of kind of true. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so good to have you. And, and to be honest, before we get into how you find the time for all of that, um, you know, tell us where your spirit of hustle and love for writing started. I would say I always loved to read as a young kid, the idea that I could be transported to a different land to like kind of get out of my head, get out of where I was like in New York growing up and just like go into these different places that um, it was such a magical transformational experience. And I loved that feeling. There was no better feeling to me and getting sucked into the pages of a book, getting in the zone and having hours pass and then looking up, it's like, oh, wow, like I'm actually in like New York City. I'm not in, uh, I don't know, um, in like uh, Narnia or something like that. Uh, and I feel like it was really cemented by both my parents and then also my grandfather. My grandfather uh, is a guy named John Landers. He um, was a World War II vet. Um, he was a lawyer. He had seven children um, and he was a lifelong learner. His, uh, one of his quotes, his many quotes, his famous quotes, uh, that education is the lightest burden you'll ever carry. Um, and he lived that, he didn't just say that, he lived that. So um, when, he, uh, when he passed away at age 90, he was in the process of learning Latin, 
uh, and calculus because he found the world so fascinating, so interesting, and there weren't enough hours in the day, candidly, for him, and I kind of uh, embody this as well, to to learn. There is so much, and like a quote that comes to mind, and I'm, I'm this way, I just read so much that I, a lot of quotes come to mind, but uh, it's uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, which um, is every man that I meet is in some way my superior, and from that, I can learn from him. So I try to take that into conversations, into books, into podcasts, because I'm just insanely curious. Um, and it's, it's just been like, it's been how I've always been um, from, from the time I was young. I absolutely love that. That's amazing. Um, and, and I mean, that translates, right? Because you, you, when we've spoken uh, off the podcast, you know, you've always spoken about how much you've loved education, your time at your high school. Um, so, you know, how did that transfer, you know, while you're at high school? What did that look like in your experience there? Totally. So I attended Regis High School, which is in New York City. Um, it's an all boys, um, all scholarship Jesuit school, uh, Catholic school um, that attracts individuals from all over the tri-state area. So it was actually founded. It's a wild story. It was founded in 1914 via a gift from an anonymous benefactress on Christmas Eve in 1914. Turns out that woman was actually the the mayor, the the widow of the mayor of New York, um, and she gave him one million dollars in 1914, which is a, a huge sum of money. Mm. Um, with it, to build a high school um, across the street from Ignatius Saint Ignatius Loyola Church in New York to educate um, poor immigrant uh, Catholic boys that couldn't otherwise uh, afford an education. So it was meant really to, it was built, um, as the motto says, um, for God and for country. And it was really meant to foster men for others. Um, I believe, I mean, it's, it's the best Catholic high school as far as I'm concerned in, in the nation. Um, and at high school, I learned a tremendous amount, not only in classes um, from the, the rigorous um, education, but also like from my classmates who are individuals that regardless of credo or creed or background, they were able to attend Regis because it was 100% free. And then also I got an entire education outside of the classroom of New York City because I was commuting um, an hour and a half one way to and from high school. As a so high schooler, this, wow. Yeah, so I took the 638 train in the morning, uh, took that to Penn Station, took the C train, from Penn Station to 86th Street. And then at 86th Street on the west side, I took the Crosstown bus to the east side and walked two minutes to school. So I did that day in and day out for, uh, for four years. So uh, yeah, I, it's kind of funny now. I commuted when I was young and now that I'm older, quote unquote, I'm uh, working from home and not commuting. So it's, uh, it's a funny kind of juxtaposition. Yeah, what about that commute? Why does that stick, stick in your mind? You know, it's like of, of all the things that, you could pull from high school. It's funny how you just immediately went to the commute. Is there something about yeah. that that I know gave you some creative headspace? Like what, what about that is interesting? Totally. So I think there's a great quote from another Regis grad is that um, you can tell that Americans invented the rocking chair because they always love to be in motion. I think for me, at least it was the idea that I was always in motion. I was going somewhere as a New Yorker. I'm, I'm very impatient. I like to get from point A to point B, but on the commutes, it was like you were making progress by getting from point A to point B. And, but like you weren't driving, so there was nothing you could do about it. So that was like pure free time. 
And I commuted with a lot of uh, a lot of guys from Long Island, where I'm from, um, at Penn Station. You'd meet up with other people from New Jersey uh, and from other parts of the city, and you'd all take the subway together. So it was like a real like kind of bonding experience going through that daily gauntlet. Um, no matter like sunshine or snow or sleet or anything like that. So you really get close to your classmates because not only are you going through this insanely rigorous academic experience, but after that's over and the bell blows, like you have to literally uh, commute home uh, to do, I don't know, hours of homework. So that was really like free time that you could spend with your, your classmates and it led to incredible bonds candidly with a lot of my um my high school classmates uh and i'm still in a group chat with about like 15 of them and it's active uh on the daily and um we have a fantasy football league um which i unfortunately did not win this year uh, well i see that you've actually written about the morning commute itself on your white noise Substack. so clearly it's had it's had such an impact yeah it has i mean it's just new york city i think is such a special place for so many different reasons i recently read that um this is going to be controversial to those on the uh the west coast i'm going to say Ooh, it anyway go on. Um, pe people on uh people on the west coast are um nice but not kind people in new york are kind but not nice um and i feel like if you're from new york or the west coast you'll get that and from the west coast you'll probably be upset but I think in, in New York City, there's such a tremendous sense of community. Um, case in point, like if you, um, if you see like uh, an individual with a stroller at the top of the subway stairs and you watch that person, I guarantee you within five, 10 seconds, a New Yorker or in New York, someone would come up, lift the stroller, take it all the way down and leave it there um, and not say probably a word to the individual <laughs> at the stroller. Be, because it's just like a sense of duty and community. I think a lot of that, um, at least for me, was like crystallized after 9-11, um, just having a lot of family members in the, uh, the fire department and uh, the police department, but just like a, a bond and a duty um, of, of New Yorkers sticking, sticking together. So I think that's really what the impact was, being proximate to the kind of cultural attachment, bonding, zeitgeist. I have a hard time putting it into, uh, into words, but just something yeah. about that New York energy that, um, that really is uh, attractive. So you spoke about the kind of community element, um, particularly after 9-11, um, but there is that kind of hard-faced uh, kind of nature of New Yorkers. Um, where is that kind of, you know, it feels a little bit unfriendly. It feels a little bit abrasive. Where, where is that stemming from, do you think? I think it's a lot of people that uh, <laughs> are really impatient, uh, that, that are in, in this huge, massive, arguably unnatural, dense mass of people. Um, and I mean, familiarity kind of breeds contempt. So I feel like in New York, if you're on the subway um, and you're seeing all these individuals, last thing you want to do is look at people. Last thing you want to do is like say hi to people. You just want to put your headphones in again from point A to point B. So I think it's a, uh, it's this kind of uh, glorification of efficiency and wanting to really, um, to really like do what you want to do, but obviously within the the broader structure of like legality and cultural nuance and and things of that nature. I think it's just like a tremendous impatience. And I think honestly, mm. that's probably why like New York is as productive, both literally and economically as it is, because a lot of people just want to go there, get shit done. Um, it's a whole concrete jungle where dreams are made of sort of trope 
or Frank Sinatra, like New York, New York, if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. I think it's like the people that are there are very high performing and who knows what this will be after COVID um, and after decades of mismanagement in the city. But um, I, I think it's kind of like a, like a pinnacle of, of productivity and there are a lot of type A people that gravitate there. So they just don't have time for the nonsense or the bullshit. That's kind of my, my off the cuff read on it, but that's not highly developed. Yeah, there's, there, it's, it's really interesting to me. I mean, there's been so many calls um, over the last, particularly the last year during COVID, um, that New York City is dead. Like, what do you make yeah. of that? Do you think there will be a revival or do you think it really has lost a bit of its soul? It's a tough one. Uh, so I will always be in New York. I'm very proud of that. That said, I think COVID is sparking a sea change in work and in life that has happened, is happening and will continue to accelerate because per physics, objects in motion tend to stay in motion. So if anything, I think that gains more traction. And I think cities like New York, cities like Chicago, cities like San Francisco will be the short term and short term defined as five, 10, probably like 15 year losers uh, in terms of population outflows, property values, um, commercial real estate, all of those things, because I think people are finally realizing like, Hey, I mean, this is for me, like 2020 is a wake up call. It's like, Hey, I really, I don't need a lot to be happy. I need food on my table. I need my faith in God, I need family and friends. Uh, I need my health and I need a roof over my head. That's like fundamentally it. So when you, you, you break people out of the kind of the rat race, um, and they're untethered from the office and they realize like, Hey, I can, uh, I can buy a place with a backyard that's like on the water in a beautiful quote unquote secondary or tertiary city, like in Ann Arbor, Michigan, or a South Bend, Indiana, or a Boise, Idaho, or a Boulder, Colorado. And I can live like a really nice life and like get a dog and I don't have to cram into a closet for 5,000 or $6,000 a month in New York or San Francisco. I think that's tremendously liberating for people. So I don't think New York will ever die, quote unquote, because I think there's such a special energy there and there's such an affinity and a, a deep, deep love for what New York is. Um, but I think that uh, we're definitely going to see a trow in the, uh, these like kind of first tier cities um, and some sort of course correction. That's like kind of my thesis. Um, that a lot of individuals are going to go to the, the smaller cities where um, they have everything they would have in a new, well, they don't have everything they would have because New York, you can literally get anything, but you can live a very nice life and not have to pay an arm and a leg for it. But something you said actually about kind of your, on your daily commute um, around, you know, movement begets movement. And I really like that. Um, and, you know, clearly your, your high school was a real source of inspiration for your, your educational journey. Uh, and then you went into, you know, studying liberal arts, like what, what was it that implored you to do that, you know, particularly in a society where um, there's definitely an attitude that you should need to study business if you want to go into the business world? Totally. I think there's this um, fetishization of majors such as like finance and accounting, like quote unquote applicable, quote unquote practical majors. For me, when I went to Notre Dame, my thought was, hey, I want to go to Notre Dame not to get a job, but to get an education to learn. And the way that I like kind of rationalized that and justified it with uh, myself and my future self and stuff was that the things that I'm going to learn reading the Western canon, the greatest books, uh, there's a reason why these books have persisted is because they're that good. And grappling with these ideas from the greatest thinkers like a Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, Spinoza, um, all these individuals is 
if the skills that I'm going to gain from that, which is the ability to read, to think, to write, to articulate, to persuade, to truly listen and deconstruct an idea and critically think about it and be able to offer my own opinion as opposed to regurgitating something a talking head or a, um, <laughs> a pundit said yeah. is really, really important and really, really rare. And I would say when you have that foundation, you can construct whatever sort of career journey vocation that you want in order to do that. And like, if it doesn't work out, okay, fine. You can always go back to school or you can pivot or you can, you can do something new. And another thing is a lot of the things that are necessary, like uh, for example, if you're going into investment banking, like you're literally paid to learn that craft um, while you're working there. If you're going into account, you're paid to learn that craft at these different institutions. So why pay to learn those technical skills when you can learn foundational skills, pay to learn those, and then be paid to learn those technical skills while on the job with your teams, with your coworkers, so that you get an appreciation for how things operate in the real world, in the business, as opposed to looking at, um, I don't know, DCFs or, or such in, in textbooks. So, so when you were in college deciding to go down this path, did you have like a clear career goal in mind or did you, was there more of like a romantic pursuit of knowledge and wisdom in this like sort of liberal art skill set? Um, I'm just putting one foot in front of the other. There's a great quote about writing and living by this author, E.L. Doctorow. Um, he says like writing slash living is very similar to driving at night. You can only see what's right in front of you, but you can make the whole journey that way. Uh, and for me, like I hold that dear and also I, I, I aspire to be a stoic. I, I can't like pretend to say I am a stoic because it's so damn hard. But um, when, when you do that and when you realize that your reactions allow you to be free, uh, like if I get punched in the face, that's an action in the universe. But my perception of that action, my color on that action is what makes it good, bad, ugly, what have you. It just makes things a lot simpler and, and easier. Um, so I kind of strayed and went, went crazy off topic as I'm wants to do, but, um, hopefully that was useful, Anthony. Following that analogy along, if you're driving at night, you're definitely going to be able to see at least where the headlamps are. Did you always have kind of a rough estimation of the things you're interested in? Yes. I would say I always had like a rough estimation, but the problem is there were so many and they were so broad that it wasn't like I was going like Northeast. It was like, hey, I know that I want to go someplace between north and south, which is to say east, but that's a huge 180 degree survey. Um, so yeah, I know I didn't want to be a mathematician. I know I didn't want to be a doctor. I know I didn't want to be an engineer, but like then that leaves the cornucopia of every other job in the <laughs> universe and every other vocation. So it's not really too useful to do the whole process of elimination in that sense. I know that... Um... You, know, you seem to be very deep into like communication, culture, media, writing, literature. Was, was, was any of this influenced by um, living with the Tourette syndrome and, and how, how that might've been, you've really leaned into being as good of a communicator as possible with all the writing and the talking and everything. Totally, yeah, I think, I think both consciously and subconsciously it's played a huge role. So since the age of nine, um, I've, I've fought uh, literally second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day um, battle with, with Tourette. So it's a 
neuropsychiatric disorder um, dictated by um, these urges to do both motor and vocal tics. They're um, uncontrollable, they're unintentional, uh, they don't discriminate, they happen at church, in the uh, home, uh, elsewhere. Um, and for me, I very much value clarity. I very much value being understood. And I very much value articulating things clearly. And honestly, it's a mental form of torture when my tics, whether they be motor or vocal, either distract from that message, confuse the message, or inhibit the message from coming out. So for me, like just to like say this sentence like that is like a mammoth, it's a, it's a, a, a mammoth kind of struggle in that capacity. But with words, with learning, with willpower, with the ability to take everything in stride and knowing that the torture that I've undergone for the last 19, 20 years has only further steeled my mind and made me psychologically robust. I know that I can handle anything that's thrown in my path no matter how grim, no matter how dismal, because I've dealt with it all before. And I've kind of wrestled with the beast that is my own insecurities, my own issues, uh, my own disability, if you want to call it that. Um, so that's something that I, I take seriously because it's, it's I, mean, every, I mean, everyone has problems. You have problems. I mean, every single person has problems. There's a great quote. I forget, again, quotes. Um, but there's a great quote from this... Uh, I think it's a stoic, it might be Seneca, but like if you were to take every person's misery and misfortune and like tragedy in their life or difficulty and throw them all in a pile in the center and you gave people the option to choose at random or their own, most people would choose their own because of the fear of the unknown that we have. Mm. So for me at least, like Tourette is a curse, it's a burden, it's very heavy yoke, but because of it, my neurons fire more rapidly, I think more quickly, and I'm better able to connect X with Y, Y with Z, Z with A. I'm able to make those verbal recognitions because my brain is fired on all cylinders every hour of the day. So I think like that ironically both hurts communication because of ticks, but also helps it because I'm able to quickly find words, make connections, make references, that other people might take some more time to, to, to uncover. I mean, it's, it's so inspiring to hear that. And, and actually, you know, I know that you spoke on this at a, at a TED talk uh, while you were studying at, at university. And I think there's something incredibly empowering about the fact that you stood up on stage and, and, and spoke, you know, vocalized uh, about your experience with something that has been such a kind of vocal burden to you and a mental burden to you over such a long period of time. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, um, I firmly believe that I'm, I'm so blessed. I, I was dealt pocket aces in life in so many different ways, shapes and forms, uh, to use a poker analogy. I'm so blessed. I have a wonderful family. I have tremendous friends. Um, I, I have like just a, a terrific life. So for me, it's like, hey, if I had the ability to articulate myself pretty well, if I had the ability to speak publicly, if I enjoy doing that, and if I can like either inspire one person or I can like make one person better understand what it is on behalf of all those individuals that have Tourette and other really, really malicious disorders like ADHD, OCD, depression, and help like kind of get people's uh, to peek into that world, that will have been worth it. Um, and, and it's like kind of my duty, I feel like to do that 
because um, there are a lot of people that would love to do it, but they, they literally don't have the ability to do so. Um, so yeah, I um, yeah, it's something that I, I I'm very oh, can't you tell like I'm uh, very passionate about, and I take it really really seriously because um, it's important. It's vitally important. Wonderful message, people to hear. Totally. And um, so from studying liberal arts, you know, you're actually able to use that to potentially unconventionally break into tech with with a degree like that. What did that look like? Yeah, um, it was uh, a lot of conversations with a lot of people that led to a ton of no's. Um, I, I firmly believe that anyone that's like looking to break into an industry to do anything ought to have as many conversations with people in that industry that you are either directly, secondarily, or tertiarily related to in some way, shape, or form. Just having conversations with people that, and like, think about it as like an index fund investing, right? Most of those conversations, probably 80% of those conversations are going to be fine. They're going to peter off, not really go anywhere. 10% might be useful. 5% might lead to some action, but then the other 5% absolutely change everything for you. So for me, it was having a ton of conversations with a lot of individuals that were doing cool things in tech. And the one that really kind of struck gold for me, and I think this is probably why I have such an affinity for my high school, was with guys that were a couple years above me that were founding a tech accelerator in New York City um, that had gone to my high school, Regis. So the connection was literally through Regis. I had a conversation with them. It's like, hey, listen, I really want to work with you guys. I'm, I'm desperate to get into tech. I, I'm fascinated by startups. Um, I'll, I'll do anything. Like, I'll literally do anything. So that led to uh, an unpaid role as the director of community and the director of uh, the internship program. And that entailed, I mean, building everything from li the literal tables at which the startups were working, like hammering those and sanding them and stuff, to uh, the infrastructure for the internship program, the recruiting, um, the, the center community at, at Grand Central Tech. So it was just a matter of putting myself out there and having those conversations. And like, I think for me, knowing like I'm not owed anything. These people don't owe me anything. So no matter how big or small the task, just executing and doing it very, very well because I respected myself, I respected the opportunity, and I respected the work that I was doing. Anything that had my name on it, I was going to make done very well. So that's just kind of how I, I thought about it. Um, and it's again, it's easier said than done. But I think fundamentally, a lot of people are like terrified of rejection. For yep. me, like no is a two-letter word. Mm -hmm. Like who cares? Yeah. Honestly, there are so many other pitches that you could swing at. Um, so yeah, that's just a little about uh, how I uh, was able to uh, you know, sneak through the back door, so to speak. I love what you said about uh, no one owed me anything. Something that I think about sometimes is uh, around kind of unpaid internships. Obviously, there, there's, well, in England, there's a bit of controversy around them. I don't know how, mm. what the case is in, in the USA, but I love the fact that it, they force you to, you know, just love the craft of what you're doing. Um, fall in love with actually just the process of working and trying to get results, not because you want a return, just because you want to do it well. Yeah, I mean, this this goes into the, I don't know, conflation of like, this is a longer conversation, kind of off topic, but like, there's a reason why like paying kids to do homework or paying kids to read or to clean their room like is fundamentally bad because I think you're kind of melding that moral compass and like, I don't know, habitual social compass with an economic one. And that's like very, very dangerous. Like to be 
paid to do things well, to do paid to be moral or to be upright or whatever you want to call it, I think is a really, really slippery slope, as opposed to having enough respect for yourself, for your fellow man or woman, um, for everyone around you to want to do well, to be kind um, and to like fundamentally uh, adhere to the golden rule, right? Like treat others as you would want to be treated. Um, so that's like a very, very different topic, but it's something that I, I think about because, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people think like, oh, like I, <clears throat> I'm owed this, like I deserve this. Like fundamentally life's unfair. Like one of my favorite quotes is, uh, it's about poker. I love to play poker. It's um, you don't have um, a right to complain about the hands you were dealt you have the duty to play the hell out of the hand that you got though. Mm. Well, well, Tom, when you were getting into tech, it's not like, like this, like accelerator grand central tech. I mean, at that point, was it a clear path to you? Because that was a decision you made. Like you could have gotten into okay. something else. You could have worked at, you know, different type of industry. Was there something about the, the tech startup incubator accelerator space that, that, drew, that maybe was based on, your previous interests and what you've learned that drew you into that, that space. Yeah, I think um, it was the ability of working really quickly, building something and having the autonomy to, to create as opposed to just kind of um, make more effective or, or optimal or something like that. I think that was what really um, attracted me about it going from zero to one as opposed to N plus one to steal uh, what Peter Thiel, uh, that rhymes funny uh to see what peter Thiel uh says in in his book but um so from there i just i caught the startup bug and i loved it the idea like that i could play an outsized role shaping a product a service um a culture um an institution was something that just was so so interesting to me um as opposed to being part of like a more macroscopic larger thing than where if I put in 1% or 100%, ultimately the machine went. Um, I don't know, that was just something that that always kind of attracted me. Um, and yeah, I mean, it led me to uh, founding and then uh, running into the ground, uh, a startup uh, myself. <laughs> yeah, tell us. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, like, what's that story though? Uh, it's, it's really not too interesting. Um, it's uh, myself, my younger brother and my older cousin, we founded this company called Glyph. Uh, and I still stand by the idea. It was 2014, uh, 2015. So this is before iMessage, Snapchat, or Messenger did it. And what we tried to do was to properly bring together and integrate um, group messaging with emoji, um, emoji-based gaming. So basically, the first game was Emoji Charades. This was something my younger uh, brother and my older cousin I would play like on our text threads, like, hey, like. This is maybe something that people would want and would want to build. Um, and we just made every mistake in the book. We assumed there was a product market fit. We went after like cool features as opposed to like the, the boring fundamental infrastructure that's needed to make the app run. Um, just really, really kind of uh, ignorance is, is fatal sort of uh, stuff, which came from being young and immature. But um, yes, yeah, so that lasts like 10, 10 months, 12 months. And uh, yeah, <laughs> that was that. Well, were, were you, um, obviously at that point, uh, you know, obviously you were very young and early and figuring stuff out, but at that point you're, you're quite a well-trained writer and communicator. Like what did you, did you take aspects about writing, maybe copywriting uh, as an important part of building a business back then? Or is this something you learned later on? 
like, I think like, maybe subconsciously it sunk in, but it's something that I really like kind of ran with later on. Um, I like to, I think I, I like to, and I like to think that I'm good at breaking things down. Um, and for me, fundamentally, um, business businesses are no more than spreadsheets and storytelling. Um, spreadsheets are kind of table stakes, like that. assets. Bigger assets equals liabilities plus equity. Like that's the accounting equation. You can't change that. But what separates the valuation of an Uber from a Lyft, from a Juno, is the story that those businesses tell. So I think a lot of people try to focus on the numbers, but if you can craft um, a narrative, you can craft uh, a special experience, then that's where like value is created, quote unquote, to steal financial parlance. Um, and there's a book that literally everyone should read um, called Alchemy by Rory Sutherland. And he talks about this so experience. Good. It's just, it's mind blowing. Like the idea, the idea that Uber uh, didn't make getting a cab any faster, but it eliminated the uncertainty of when that cab was going to come. Mm. And when you read I, this book, it just changes your perspective on everything. Love that. I, I've, I've actually read that book recently myself and it's amazing. Are there, okay, so on this topic, because I think this is really interesting and what you said, I'm gonna, I just wrote down that quote, like spreadsheets and storytelling. Now, given your analysis of this, are there companies that you would say, are best in class that you think are do this really well? And maybe on the flip side, are there companies you think that did a poor job with the storytelling? Okay. Um, it's a really, really good question. And one I haven't thought too, too deeply about. Actually, actually there's one example that stands out. Um, I think Lemonade, are you guys familiar with Lemonade? Which is the, uh, the novel kind of modern insurance app for both home and rental insurance. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think of insurance, it's bland, it's boring, it stinks, it's necessary evil. Um, Lemonade with its everything from its color scheme to its logo, to it being an app, as opposed to going to one of those dinky state farm offices, no offense to state farm, and like <laughs> buying your insurance. Like everything about it is so fundamentally different, but ultimately at the end of the day, you're buying insurance. It just makes that process so much more easy and efficient and more like human too, because literally you're talking to a bot and you realize that, but the bot like has a name. Like I vividly remember, like I had to get renter's insurance um, when I, when I moved and the bot's name is like Ada or something. And it was like uh, this like female <laughs> face. It was like, wow, like this is actually like pretty neat. And it took me five minutes as opposed to like going online and, doing a request for quote and entering all these things. So I think that's an example of a company that just absolutely crushes it. So I mean, like full disclosure, I, I invested in, in Lemonade, it's a public company, but, and for me, like it's, it's a no lose situation simply because, and this is not financial advice, all that yada, yada, but um, it's a no lose situation because even if it fails and it goes uh, under, that will be bought by some insurance company at a premium simply for the branding that that has, because that's mm -hmm. another, flow for customers for an Allstate or for a Geico or for any number of companies. Um, so that's kind of my very quick and dirty thesis on it. Uh, awesome. I mean, it, from someone who kind of writes beautifully, you communicate beautifully, um, you know, to that back to that point that I just made around uh, spreadsheets and storytelling. Um, what, what are kind of three pieces of advice you would give to a, a startup who's trying to think about how they would tell their story today? Um, one thing that I've heard that I always liked is anytime someone says, 
God, this sucks. That's an op that's an opportunity for a product or service to exist or for something to be made better. Um, that's just an easy way to see when there's an opportunity. Um, like for example, take the Uber and Lyft again, right? Like people like stand in the rain waiting for a cab. Oh God, this sucks. Like I hate it. Boom. What if I, you could order a cab and know exactly when it was going to arrive at a given time. Um, really, really awesome in that way. So I would say that, um, I would say less is more. Um, the, the product has to work and it has to work well. And most importantly, it has to do what it says you're doing. Um, as opposed to, uh, simply kind of be dressed up in machine learning and leveraging synergies and automation and all those buzzwords. I think for me, at least jargon, I wrote about this recently, actually jargon is just like a patina, a top confused thought and muddled language. Like it's nothing more. It's meant to obscure as opposed to be crystal clear. So I think that leads to the third point, which is be clear, be concise and be like very honest and transparent about what you're doing and how you're doing it. Um, again, with a quote, I apologize. I'm intolerable. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, a quote from Mark Twain is like, you tell the truth, you never have to remember anything. And it's like pretty nice when you're just kind of walking around and being able to, to not have to worry about this web of lies that you've kind of created for yourself um, that could potentially trip you up. Um, it just makes life a lot like simpler and easier. So those are the things that I would, I would uh, focus on. Be clear, uh, be transparent, um, and just recognize that there are so many opportunities everywhere. Anytime someone says, oh, this sucks, or oh, this is brutal, or something like that, that could potentially be a product that could be the next Uber or, or Lyft or, or what have you. And speaking of kind of recognizing opportunities, um, you know, after first breaking into tech, I mean, you now found yourself at None other than OnDeck. I mean, OnDeck's getting well, global recognition, uh, a lot of hype around it in, in Silicon Valley for sure. Um, talk to us about that decision and, and what the experience has been like so far. I mean, no, I think like first getting involved with OnDeck was directly related to my building in public and writing online. I, I don't have to sell you both because we met actually in an OnDeck fellowship. Um, but I think everyone should write online because even if no one reads it, you become a clearer thinker. You're better able to articulate yourself and you know where you stand on ideas and lines of argumentation. Um, one of my favorite quotes, I think it's from Shane Paris, is uh, writing is the process by which you um, you learn that you don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> and it's so true. It is so true. Sorry. So for me, 2020, I started publishing a bit more seriously. started writing, ghostwriting, editing for people, taking it a bit more seriously. And that opportunity led me to um, get noticed by On Deck, had conversations with them, started work with them part-time. And I was so impressed by the caliber of person that they were bringing on to the team itself, but also that they were attracting to the various fellowships that I candidly was like, hey, if you're offered a seat on the rocket ship, you don't turn it down because it's foolish to. And the way I think of my job, uh, like I hesitate to say this, I'm gonna say it, like I get paid to read, to write, and to have fascinating conversations with some of the most intelligent, driven people globally. Um, I get paid to do that. That's just like silly. I would do that a kind dream. of for free. But I mean, I literally, I mean, like how I met you both, right? Like the, just through that kind of serendipity of taking a community, making it very, very focused on whether it be a creative pursuit or founding a company 
or potentially um, wanting to switch roles or wanting to focus on a vertical such as climate tech or something like that um, and bringing that together and then candidly getting out of the way, letting the kind of creative collisions happen that lead to such things as the Ben and Tony podcast, case in point. Um, So for for me, and I think think this is a larger point, but the decline of organized religion, um, the lockdowns, COVID, I think there have been a lot of tailwinds for people pining for genuine community. And I think our candidates team and our talent team does a tremendous job filtering the wheat from the chaff so to speak to get the very best people that are very very leaned in and really really want to to give so that they can receive um i think like giving is receiving is like a common trope but i think at no place um and and challenge me if you think this is wrong like in no place is that more apparent than in like odw uh on deck writing when you write you give feedback you have those kind of intellectual conversations that lead you to better understand what you're talking about and why you're talking about it. So, so Tom, I, I think um, people who might not know what on deck is, who are kind of hearing us talk about it, like maybe you could give a couple sentence summary of just at a high level, what on deck is and also what the plans are for the future. Because I think maybe for someone who has no idea what it is, like how should they think about it? Yeah, it would probably be helpful, right? As opposed to jumping in the deep end. I uh, apologize. No worries. Um, on deck is basically um, it's a seed stage startup that is, basically trying to replicate Silicon Valley in the cloud. Um, Because now things have moved online, because we are no longer governed by artificial constraints such as geography or locality or or time zones, or even like being synchronous or working at the same time as someone else, there's a tremendous opportunity to bring individuals from across the globe together based upon a fellowship, a synchronous fellowship model, so some of our programs are eight weeks, others are 10 weeks, some are six months, and it ranges from everything to um, on-deck venture capital, to on-deck angel investing, to on-deck podcasting, to on-deck writing, to on-deck climate tech, to on-deck design. Today, um, on-deck performative speaking, public speaking was just announced. So basically the end goal for on-deck, the kind of 50-year vision, uh, and I'm probably not doing it justice, it's laid out very, very well on our site, is to become like the place for ambitious people to go when they know they want to do something. They don't want to. They want to move in a given direction, but they don't necessarily know what that thing is they want to do, or have the community, or know who they want to do it with. Um, I think that is really the the encapsulation of it, um, and I think it's just it's it's tremendous. It uh, it's led to conversations and opportunities that um, I I wouldn't have had. Um, otherwise, and I mean, just like case in point, I would never have met either of you um, because oh, I think it's meant to New be. Zealand it's and meant to be. New, Zealand, right, New Zealand and San, <laughs> New Zealand and San Francisco, right? Like literally opposite sides of the globe. And I'm in Indiana. Like we probably never would have crossed paths. So anyone who's listening to this, if you're at a point of intention, um, you don't know exactly what you <laughs> want to do, but you want people around you. It's beyonddeck.com forward slash, and this is important, writers. So Tom, like one of the other things that you mentioned before as well, when you're talking through on deck is um, around this kind of online community building. Uh, it's getting yeah. a lot of kind of eyeballs on that right now. What are some of the things that you've learned through on deck about how to build really, really solid communities? Um, I think ensuring, I think 
communities are fundamentally their constituent parts, which is to say those individuals that, um, that, that make them up. Um, so I think it's selecting really, really, really good people, people um, that are people of integrity, people that are kind, people that are compassionate, people that are motivated, people that aren't critics, but rather like constructive in their feedback. Um, it's one thing to say, hey, this sentence sucks. It's another thing entirely to say, hey, like, I, I think I understand what you're saying here. It didn't quite kind of solidify for me. What if you tried this word or if you rewrote it in this way? Like very, very different. Um, and a lot of people stop at the former because it's just easier and they're lazy as opposed to going that extra distance. So I think it's filtering for that, but then creating like very clear um, norms, ground rules, and like places for individuals to really take it and run with it. Um, I think, and this goes to like behavioral psychology, like fundamentally incentives align the world. If you incentivize good action, and you disincentivize or nip in the bud bad action, eventually those things reciprocate. So it's a matter of selecting those really, really, really high caliber people, giving them space, establishing norms, incentivizing good behavior, stopping bad behavior, and then can't really just getting out of the way. Um, that's that's how, how I kind of break it down. Yeah, it seems like incentivizing good behavior is uh, a little bit simpler, but I, I, I think for me, at least, content moderation of communities uh, and community moderation kind of as a broader time for it, um, that seems harder. How do you stop bad behavior in a community, particularly when it's an online community? I, ideally, you don't get to let those people into the community in the first place. That's the easiest way, right? Like remove the temptation, remove the sin. But the way if like that individual or that behavior has pervaded the community, I think like being really intentional about um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't do this publicly. I would do this privately in a conversation with someone saying, Hey, listen, like, I understand that you're doing X. I know you probably have positive intent, but these are the reasons why this isn't acceptable within this community, within this place. Um, and something that we really don't want to encourage. Uh, and then like kind of, um, and addressing it in that manner. Um, I, I very much believe, um, it's a military like policy or something or or where it's from but like praise publicly um and reprimand privately i, I think totally that's so that. important yeah. yeah um yeah because then then um it's just then it just aligns to how we behave and what we optimize for and what behaviors we we want to partake in it's such an exciting place to be and i mean the future's bright from deck there's so many different uh fellowships which have been launched even more launching, like how do, how do they all kind of fit together? Um, there's actually um, one of our favorite words internally, and this is inspired by our CEO, David, is a flywheel. Basically, we want to utilize the communities to better understand what needs founders have, what need angel investors have, what needs podcasters have, and then augment and supplement those communities with additional communities so that as the communities grow, as they become more vibrant, as new members enter that maybe want to write, that want to podcast, that want to um, change jobs and join a startup, basically all these gears, as opposed to being distinct, are turning together. And as they turn together, it kind of goes into um, law of motion. Like it turns more quickly and quickly and quickly. And eventually it leads to like a leaping emergent effect 
because of all that creative energy that's proximate to one another. So that happens in the Slack, that happens in the, the community directory, um, which is kind of a, a LinkedIn on steroids or a souped up LinkedIn. Um, and in, uh, in the one-on-one -on -one conversations that people kind of uh, participate in in their uh, own power. So, so, so Tom, there, this is an exciting year for me, in many ways. You know, you like OnDeck seems to be doing really well. You're, you're happy and excited to be part of it. Now, the other two priorities in your life, if I've got that correctly, is like you spend a lot of time investing, but you spend a lot of time writing as well, which is partially related to on deck, partially not. Are there certain yeah. things that you're most excited about, maybe when it comes to the writing side of things? Like, uh, do you have a plan for writing goals for 2021 or topics that you really want to dive deeper into? It's um, a really good question, actually. Um, I think for me, I think first and foremost, I need to lose the quarantine 15. Uh, I've been uh, a <laughs> bit a sedentary and uh, yeah, and lackadaisical. So I'm trying to, to get back into the swing of things and uh, moving more and eating less. So I guess that's like a, uh, that's a, a, a primary goal, I guess. <laughs> so I'm with you on that for one. A longer I've got, term. I've got a dad board over here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I'm looking at my counter right now and like, there are like a bunch of bananas that I bought. Like I, every time I'm hungry, I just eat a banana, which is probably not the best. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, but that, that, uh, that's a, a sidebar, but um, I guess, I mean, long-term I would love to, um, would love to, to get published in some capacity. would love to write a book for me. I think like, I really want to focus on, on me this year and not like in a selfish way, but just like treat myself better, like emotionally, physically, um, like mentally so that I can give to others more. Cause I feel like a lot of people like 2020 was, and for me, this like is certainly true. It was the best year of my life, but also the worst year of my life for a mm -hmm. lot of different reasons. And I think because of that, I fell into some really bad habits that I'm trying to break so that I can be a better version of myself so that in turn, I can give more of myself to others because like I'm more comfortable with who I am. Um, with with respecting myself, with loving myself and and things of that nature. So that's like kind of esoteric. But for me, fundamentally, it comes down to, again, my liberal arts will show, but like the cardinal virtues, right? It's prudence, it's about justice, temperance, fortitude, and then faith, hope, and love, the greatest of which is love. Yes. And when I say love, I quote Joseph Pieper uh, or his definition, which is love is is an affirmation of another's existence. So to say like, I love you, Ben, I love you, Anthony, is to say the world, my world in particular, and the world in, in general is a better place because you both exist in it, um, which I think is a tremendously powerful formulation of that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I love you guys in the Ben and Tony podcast. It's uh, the uh, world's better for, for it being in it. <laughs> Tom, Tom we love you too, bro. Yeah, we love you. Beautiful message. Um, now, we, we, we have this tradition now in the Ben and Tony podcast where we, we ask two questions of every guest at the very end. And I'll, I'll ask the first one. So if you're ready, Tom, tell us, what ready to is rock, your favorite? <laughs> Let's go. What is your favorite rom-com, romantic comedy? Favorite romantic comedy? Oh, my God. Um, that is tough. Oh, goodness. <laughs> have you leaned back? Does, does, like, does, does, it's, does It's a Wonderful Life count? I, well, I think we'll let it pass. Well, well, uh, you know, it's it, it's there's there's we could we could bend the rules a bit for you. So uh, if that's your choice, okay, I, totally I appreciate happy with that. It. Yeah. yeah, that it, like I mean, it, yeah, is it the story or what? What, the, what about it? Um, 
just that like like no man is a failure who has friends like and life is so rich like i firmly believe that like it probably sound like such a like a nonsense spewer but i firmly believe it like everything like everything is wonderful but we love to complain so much and i mean i was like thinking today i got like uh doordash delivered it's like a miracle that i have a supercomputer in my pocket i can press <laughs> a few buttons and get a pizza delivered to me it's just silly like try explain try explaining that to someone in the 18th century and they think like all right well off to the asylum you go like you're an idiot um so yeah it couldn't be more true it actually couldn't be more true it's so easy to complain about uh you know very small negatives but in the grand scheme of things we have we are in a really good place a very privileged position yeah no i i firmly believe that um the second one is a little bit deeper uh, so Uh-oh. Tom, you're sitting across from an 18 year old Tom and you can tell him one piece of advice to last him the next 20 years. What do you tell him? Invest in Bitcoin and do it now. <laughs> <laughs> Don't waste any time. Uh, yeah, no, I would, um, that's, that's, I mean, that's serious, but it's not, uh, too deep. Um, but I would say, um, there is a tremendous amount of difficulty ahead of you and shit that's going to be thrown your way and trouble that you're going to encounter, but none of it will fell you. None of it will cow you. If anything, it's just like, it's just a grindstone that's going to make you sharper intellectually, um, morally and, um, and emotionally. Um, and like, know that like, if you're going like to steal from Winston Churchill, if you're going through hell, just keep on going. Um, yeah, that's what I would probably say. And then I'd say buy Bitcoin and buy a hell of a lot of it, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, Winston Churchill just took a big puff of his cigar up in heaven. My man. Tom, it's been awesome chatting with you. Really appreciate you coming on. Thanks guys. I appreciate it.